makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. And it's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse from the Cheyenne River, Lakota. And this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year broadcasting. Liz Hill, a Red Lake Ojibwa, is the producer of First Voices Radio. And you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for the archives. Welcome once again. Today I'll be talking with Max Wilbur, a returning guest, about the new book that he co-authored with Derek Jensen and Lear Keith titled Bright Green Lies and how the environmental movement lost its way, and what we can do about it. Yes, the book was published this year by Monkfish Press. Max is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide, and has been a part of grassroots political work for nearly 20 years. And he's an author, and his essays have been published many places, including Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. Max has been involved in fighting both Canadian and Utah tar stands in resisting industrial scale, water extraction and deforestation in Nevada, and advocating for the last remaining wild buffalo in Yellowstone, and in solidarity work with indigenous communities in British Columbia and in campaigns against sexual violence. I'd ask you to look at this new book and listen to our little interview and highly recommended by First Voices Radio at Monkfish's website, Monk, which is M-O-N-K, monkfishpublishing.com. And so we're going to go to Max Wilbert, we're talking about the questions, uh, welcoming a viewpoint about what environmentalism is and environmental movement today. So we'll be going to that in 
Stay tuned for more of First Voices Radio. But I wanted to begin with the bright green lies, how the environmental movement lost its way, what we can do about it. And but then comes the question, what we can't do about it, you know, is we often are looking to the solutions coming from the same system that created the problem. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, the harms caused by industrial technology are a huge part of what got us into the mess that we're in right now in the world. That's not the only problem, of course, but, you know, the, the tools of industrial technology have led us to the brink of, of ruin in terms of the climate, in terms of species extinction, in terms of this whole, you know, system of global capitalism, which, uh, you know, was, was pretty brutal uh, before fossil fuels came on the scene, before uh, the power of machines, you know, was harnessed to, uh, to create this whole factory system around the world and this uh, production economy that we live in, which is really a, a destruction economy. Um, you know, there was a lot of issues before that began, but that was just like pouring gasoline on a fire. And so I think you're exactly right. It's, it's really dangerous to look to uh, the technologies that got us into these problems um, for solutions. And when we talk about the solutions, I'm thinking we often use the term alternative methods, uh, energy uh, solutions, as we say, but when we tend to use language so easily as if it's going to answer, uh, begin to answer the problem to find a solution. And what I'm saying is that, is it Part of the language, what I'm reading in here in Bright Green Lies, is that the idea that we needed to tend to our language, how we are misusing it. So when I'm thinking about one of your um, intros from Thomas Lindsay, who talked about exploding the myth, but then again, there is the idea that somehow we can find our way out of the mess that we've created by using renewable energies to prop up the lie that endless growth is possible without continuing to destroy the planet, the life support systems that it provides. So is there a way out? Is there an exit strategy, Max Wilbert, with this type of thinking? Yeah, well, I think that's part of the problem with, with the whole mythology of these renewable energy technologies it's not just that they are harmful. They are harmful to the planet. They're causing all kinds of destruction and they will cause a lot more. But the problem is deeper than that because so many people are focused, you know, almost exclusively on green technology and renewable energy as the solution that they literally don't have time for anything else. Um, you know, they, they're focused on that and they get this tunnel vision and I think, you know, that describes much of the modern climate movement today. You know, so much of that movement is no longer about uh, stopping fossil fuels directly or, uh, or protecting the natural world, but it's about expanding renewable energy technologies. And, you know, that's not across the board. There are plenty of folks who sort of cross, cross those boundaries and those stereotypes. Um, but I think that, you know, we have a limited amount of time, you know, these problems that we're facing um, with global warming, with species extinction, 
with these other issues, um, they're, they're moving forward really fast. They're progressively getting worse and worse. And so I really think it's important we focus on what's going to be the most effective and what's actually going to work, you know, rather than wasting time on, on solutions that, that won't work. Um, so, you know, as you talk about an exit strategy, I really think we do need an exit strategy for, uh, for this whole culture, really, that we call industrial civilization or industrial capitalism or empire or whatever term you want to use to refer to it, the, the, colonial, uh, the colonial system that has been built around this planet. Um, we need an exit strategy rather than a strategy to change the energy source that's powering that system. We need to actually move away from that system entirely. And, um, you know, that's, that's challenging. I'm not, I'm, I certainly don't pretend that that is a simple task. It's a huge monumental task that's going to require a lot of people, um, you know, using different strategies and different approaches uh, all around the planet. But, you know, I, I think that uh, as long as we're pretending that green energy um, can change things, that we can simply change the energy source that's powering, you know, this destructive culture uh, and everything will be okay. As long as we're pretending that's true, we're not actually working on that more fundamental change that's actually needed. Mm, when we talk about fundamental change, it's kind of like this... Uh idea of apocalyptic myths that if we don't follow science, trust science that I've heard in the last few years, to me, that's just, you know, sanitizing anybody's thought. But President Biden also came out with that just recently, in fact, yesterday or the day before, that he did it with a dig towards Trump, because Trump didn't want to trust science as far as a coronavirus. But yet it's a double-edged sword, trust science the approach used in a political manner, meaning, meaning to me that there's somebody in charge of our alternative technologies, if that's what it is. And then as far as even going down to what Derek notes in the afterward here, we're going to jump ahead into the book here, uh, The Bright Green Lies, is that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stated, we must again invest in the development, manufacturing, deployment, and distribution of energy. But this time green energy and you know to me that's that's a wall that's it's not just a red flag we need to stop change the language and actually utilize that language in in a practical manner rather than we're, we're kind of nudging the make america great again mentality and we're going to be okay as long as we get back into how we used to think about altruistically thinking that we can save the world, what language are we using? And so books like Bright Green Lies is actually telling you how even today's environment movement has lost its way. Yeah, thanks, Jokasen. That's a really good question. And I think, you know, my thoughts mirror yours in a lot of ways here. I think, um, you know, you do so much good work on your show interviewing uh, musicians and artists and I was just doing some writing this morning about how, you know, rationality isn't, isn't always bad. Of course, you know, we, that's one of our abilities as human beings. We have this ability to be really scientific and really rational in our thinking. And sometimes that's really important. That's, uh, that's an incredible skill that we have and we need to develop that um, faculty. And, 
and not push it away. And at the same time, um, you know, the rational mind has a tendency to, um, to make bad decisions at times because um, when we get too caught up in that rational thinking, we forget about emotion and we forget about love and we forget about relationships and mystery and the unknown and the things we don't know. Um, and when we forget about those things, uh, we can make decisions that seem very rational from one perspective, but if you take a step back and think rationally, but also think with your heart, um, you see big problems with that, you know, that path. And I think that really describes so much of the alternative energy and the mainstream climate movement is, you know, these people are really applying their rational minds. Um, they're looking at the problem of climate change, which is very real and very scary and dangerous. Um, but they're looking at it like a math problem to solve. You know, they're looking at it as a set of numbers on a spreadsheet um, that can be solved by changing the, the, the variables in some way. And I don't think that is an accurate reflection of the reality of climate change. You know, the climate uh, crisis, the way I look at it is as a symptom of the deeper disconnect that we have with the natural world. You know, most of the species extinctions on the planet have absolutely nothing to do with global warming. Most of the harm that this culture has done to the planet has nothing to do with global warming. And so to pretend that, you know, we can uh, balance this so-called carbon budget, as people talk about, and, and solve the ecological crisis that we're facing, I think is really misguided. And I think it's one of those cases where the rational mind, again, it's important. We need the science. We need the rational thinkers, the climate scientists, the ecologists, um, all those people who have that skill set. Um, and we all have the ability to think in that way and, and to, uh, to be very rational and critical thinkers. But I think we also need the artists and the visionaries and the, the poets and the musicians and the people who can sort of help us take a step back and say, you know, what's really, what's really important? What's really the root of the problems that we're fa facing here? Um, and, you know, I think that, that when we do that, we end up coming to a much more um, useful and integrated way of thinking about the problems that we're facing. And, you know, I, I mean, I've been really lucky over the past few months to spend a lot of time with uh, some of the elders from the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe out at Thacker Pass and j just speaking with them and sitting around the fire and hearing their old stories and um, asking their advice and, uh, you know, chatting. It just really strikes me every time how, um, how smart it is to have a culture that is based on uh, respect and reverence for elders and for their knowledge and their wisdom um, because it's applied knowledge. You know, it's, it's not just book learning. It's not just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's, uh, it, it's, it's that type of thing. Plus the uh, emotional knowledge, the spiritual knowledge, the, the knowledge of human psychology and, and culture and how we make decisions and things that might go wrong. Um, and I think a lot of that is missing from 
the mainstream conversations around these issues. So I think we need to revisit that and look differently. Yes, thank you for that, Max Wilbert. Did, you know, the, begs a question for me that why, you know, you talk about rational thinking, rationality, and, you know, Einstein said a quote about it, and I won't say it, but basically that that has become our sacred <laughs> Sacred rationale, rationale has been, we put that above the sacred gift of intuition. So it brings the question, so why can't we handle what the human is doing to earth? We come up with excuses saying that we actually are doing something. So I have an old cell phone, mobile phone, and it's basically called electronic waste. And yet we say we can recycle this and, and you... Um, basically a capitalistic impulse that recycling is, you know, the go-to. But still, there's a there's an industry behind that. I heard my cell phone gets sent to India or to another country, and what they do is pull apart all everything, the metals, whatnot, and, and they create this sort of toxic dump. But yet we get the benefits of recycling because I'm thinking that, whatever is saved from or, or salvaged from the recycling junk is, you know, put into other forms and we get it back. It leaves toxic dump site in other countries, but we're not really removing the problem. We're just recycling the problem. Yeah. And I think that's one of those areas where the, the rational mind can really uh, trick us in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, it, it, my rational mind has tricked me plenty of times. So I'm not trying to say I'm all high and mighty and I've got it all figured out. You know, um, uh, excuse me. I used to really think that uh, recycling and these green technologies were going to save the world. And there are a lot of numbers and reports and, and um, projections and models out there that will say the same thing. The problem I think is that, Um, you know, so many of the atrocities in the world today are not the result of one person saying, you know what, it's okay if we destroy this entire watershed or this river, or if we poison this community um, in order to make money. You know, sometimes that type of thing does happen, but often the destruction that happens in the world today is the result of of hundreds of people each making one small decision. Um, you know, so maybe there's a, uh, there's a board of directors of a company that comes in and says, I, I want to put in this recycling project and we can make money from it. And then the regulators say yes to it. And, um, you know, the permitting agencies get involved and they say, we have no problems with this. And there's a series of decisions And each time somebody might look at it and say, okay, yes, there's this pollution involved. Yes, there's this uh, destruction of a forest involved, but it's just a little bit, you know, it's just a little bit of harm. It's not that big of a deal. Um, But the thing is, you get that happening millions and millions and millions of times over and over and over again, all around the world. And then suddenly you have a crisis, you know, it's, it's like, uh, just like us, I think the earth can heal from uh, small cuts, even significant wounds, you know, we can heal from that. But if they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming, eventually there's a point where a given natural community or a given area, even the whole earth um, can't survive. And 
you know, that, that, that sort of series of, of decisions, that, I think that's a really slippery slope. And this whole culture is really good at rationalizing those decisions and rationalizing harm to the natural world and saying, you know, it, it's okay that we do this because blah, 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 whatever reason, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think you and I have spoken about this before. I really think that indigenous cultures and land-based cultures that have managed to live sustainably for thousands and thousands of years um, in one place, you know, for time immemorial, that really represents like the pinnacle of human intelligence to me because we're really smart. You know, we have these capacities to destroy what's around us. Um, It's something that we're all capable of. But I think the cultures that don't do that are deliberate about it. You know, they make decisions, they tell stories, they develop a whole culture um, to help, to help each other remember, (laughs) you know, to pass down that knowledge from generation to generation. And that to me, it's not easy to do, but obviously it's something that we're all capable of because there are a lot of sustainable cultures on the earth today. And, you know, you go back not very far in history and all of the human cultures were sustainable. That's so true. And I think in, in terms of is the term that we have become, we've become these, these technical human doings that we want to leave our mark on life in the past to say that we're doing better than we did. But yet there are those organic human beings. They're just being organically in tune with nature, in tune with just about everything. And that's not a romanticization. Um, but when you get to the technical human doing, as if we need to find something that Earth doesn't offer. In other words, Earth can no longer teach us lessons in that mindset that we have assumed a position that we can control and teach the earth the lesson. That's part of the myth that technology has taken us to a place where um, this catastrophe with the planet has happened. We become uh, go-to default extractivists and everything we say, everything you do, it's about taking something so it makes you feel better temporarily. And I think that's what is going on now, this machine. It's an imposition on Earth. And that's where um, I think we need to sever this rationale thinking we're doing the right thing in saving the human aspects rather than the rest of life. And as you mentioned, the elders in the desert in Thacker Pass in, in Nevada, is they're, they're getting to know, they've, they've known this for a long time, what life support systems are providing. Just just the notion of not stepping on an ant is a life support respectability or respect life that way because that ant, as you described in one of your videos out there, how they are conducively working with this 100-year-old sage bush uh, along with uh, the, the ants and uh, there was something else or uh, aphid, Aphids, yeah. And they were all working in conjunction. And this is what we mean, that renewable energy for us is what you just described. That's a renewable energy, the way we think about life in, in as we see it, as we experience it, rather than the technical aspects that we are, are given, programmed into accepting this formula of 
what renewable energy is. That's a that's a that's a question filled with comments too. So you can take it mm. from there, Max. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I, it makes me think about you know the whole model of um, of evolution that's taught in in Western science of you know competition and survival of the fittest. Um, you know, versus the idea of mutual aid and cooperation. And I think about those, uh, the ants and the aphids and the sagebrush and, a, you know, a, a traditional, <coughs> excuse me, a, a Western mindset might look at that situation and say, um, this is parasitic, you know, the, uh, and that that's one way of describing it. Um, but I think there's sort of a larger way of, of looking at ecology and our place on the planet where you say, you know, this is bigger than any of us as individuals. This is about the relationships between different communities of, of beings, you know, families of life on this planet over thousands and millions of years and, and the way that we interact with each other, um, you know, in a good way or in a bad way. And I think about the whole green technology story and I've been comparing it recently to manifest destiny mm. because I think it, I think there's the same mindset behind it. It's the mindset of progress and it's the mindset that says, you know what? It, it may be distasteful what we have to do for this progress. It may be, uh, it may be bloody. It may be harmful to some people, but if it gets us to where we're going, if it gets us further along this path of progress, then it's worth it. Um, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, you, you look at the Elon Musks of the world and the Jeff Bezos and the really wealthy, powerful people. And I think they, they show that mindset very clearly, but I think you also find it among uh, the climate movement quite a bit. Um, I think you, you see a lot of this idea that, you know, fossil fuels are the old and we have to get them out of the way to, to make new, uh, to make a new way, which is the renewable energy, <laughs> excuse me, the green energy. And, you know, Bill McKibben wrote a piece recently in the New Yorker where he said, um, there will be, there will have to be some sacrifices in order to have this green energy future. And the thing is, he's not talking about sacrifices that he's going to make or that capitalism is going to make or that uh, Jeff Bezos and the wealthy are going to make. He's talking about harm to the natural world. He's talking about destroying forests to put in wind turbines and, and industrial energy generation facilities. Um, and it's, it's always the natural world that's asked to sacrifice. It's always the poor and the indigenous and the people of color who are asked to sacrifice and the poor white people often too, who are asked to sacrifice in this culture, you know, for progress. And it doesn't seem that much different than what came before. In fact, it seems like it's exactly the same. Just, just a question about the book that you and Derek Jensen, Lear Keith, wrote about the environmental policies, the stats and the facts and the, the budget and, you know, all of these, they, they seem to be, we could say that's the problem. But when we come back to the root consciousness that you're talking about, that we are so far away, we have earth distanced ourselves for 
I don't know, 4,000 years since Western democracy came, not just 500 years ago, but it started someplace else. So um, I'm thinking that the scientists and businesses, they all advocate each other and are talking about slashing the climate change is our enemy. And we're always putting it in light that we need to fight the, the climate change. And yet all we're doing is saying it's, it's Earth's problem, not ours. And we continue to declare that science is, is a solution. And I go to that and I'm, I'm not knocking science because it is in somewhat, it is a, a good place, but science actually means to, to cut, you know, to, to, to defrag, to fragment things. And when I look at that, it's like, okay, I thought it was about unity, bringing together, but what better elder to teach us than the earth. And you mentioned the, the Paiute and he's spending time with the elders and they are referring to their elder as the earth. And, and this is not just, it doesn't need explanation within the box to say this is real because as you see, it's happening, but it's not in the time, the time shed just as much as the watershed is. You don't know how long it's been there. We can estimate, but now we can say that our thinking process has been ongoing for so long. And I think people like you, like a lot of people listening to this this radio program are tired of what formula fed thoughts and you know theories and what we can do and we we laud we clap and we jump for joy that they can fly a helicopter on mars and yet this is what we've come to hear that those people who are awake know that there's something far more profound than f- flying a helicopter on mars so that's just another little thought process and, and wondering, you know, with you, with this book, the, the title, Bright Green Lies, it's in your face. It's right there, but we don't see the obvious, you know, see, and I said before, Max, the elephant in the room, but where no one's talking about the room and how the elephant got into the room. And, and now we have this problem of trying to see what's in front of us, but because we're trying to look out the window. I think you're exactly right. And You know, the reason we called the book uh, Bright Green Lies is because, well, you know, I think a lot of the grassroots people, a lot of the average everyday people who believe in green technology and green energy, I think they just don't have the information. You know, I think that they, there are a lot of good hearted people out there who, if they're exposed to these ideas, um, will come to see the truth of them. It might take some time. It might take some, some effort, some conversations. Uh, you know, some, some deep thinking for them, but you know, it's, it's, it's self-evident when you start to do some really basic research that, you know, covering huge amounts of the Mojave desert in solar panels is not actually good for the planet. You know, it's, it may produce less carbon than, than coal power plant, but that doesn't mean it's not destroying the earth. Um, And, you know, the same is true of, whatever you look at electric cars, you know, okay, there may be in some cases less carbon coming out of the tailpipe, but it's an industrial product. You know, there's destruction from the very beginning to the very end of, of producing a car and running it and then disposing of it when, when it breaks down. Um, And I think that people can understand this. And so really it comes down to a question of values in the end. Mm-hmm. I think some people really value 
human convenience and comfort and luxuries more than they value the natural world. I think there are some people out there who are misguided in that way. And I don't necessarily blame them um, because that's what we're taught in this culture. That's what school teaches us and television and all the popular media, you know, we don't get a basic ecological education. You know, I mean, I think that when we're kindergartners should be out in the forest and in the fields every day and learning about native plants and medicines and learning about um, ecology and population dynamics and um, the water cycle and, you know, all of these things, like the basics of life on this planet. <laughs> you know, most people in this, in this world aren't taught that at any point in their life. And so it's, it's no wonder to me that so many people are disconnected and don't really understand how serious these issues are. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to ignore the, the collapse of the oceans or the collapse of biodiversity on this planet. If you don't actually interact with this planet, you know, you just interact with your TV and your cell phone and your car and your job and your friends. And um, so I, I don't blame those people, um, but we need to reach them. I think we need to, mm -hmm. to turn that tide. Um, but like I was saying, I, we called it bright green lies, I think, because there are some people who should know better. And the, the real people who are promoting these uh, green energy technologies as a solution should know better, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they are, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't, I don't claim to understand why I don't claim to understand their psychology or what they're thinking. Thank you for that. That keeps me on, on track here too. And I need to hear that too, because I often say that there's a this psychological problem deep in there somewhere, but then, you know, I get to the language once again, is that since I was 12, we're talking decades ago, right? And, just knowing that I had to deal with the radiation coming out of that Nevada and landing in South Dakota and having to take the medication because of the radiation made me, and, and without knowing it, an environmental activist. And so when it came to the environmental movement, I told my elders who were alive at the time, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. And they said, do you want to really look at that word? Because you have to understand cultures that don't have the word for environment because we are that. So when environmentalists are, are congregating and we're declaring and we're signing petitions and we're going to go make this action and that action, no one's asking the earth if that's what she wants. So they said, once there are no longer environmental conferences, then you know that whatever it is that we're supposed to be, be doing concerning the environment is working. But it won't be because we congregate and play hacky sack and all of those things. That's something. <laughs> but where, where are all the older people, you know, the elders that are needed? I think it, it's more about, you know, the earth is enjoying us. And I think we forgot how to enjoy, truly enjoy the earth. And the book, Bright Green Lies, is so clear I cannot take anything for granted anymore. Even the hurry up, the hurry scurry, find a solution, panic, because, you know, we have to stop this and stop that. And yet so many people, that's hard for them to think about. 
because as you say, the language is not there, that the thoughts are not there. Morality of the earth, I think, is deep ingrained in all of us. I think this bright green lies is, is part of that. And it, it's, it is, to me, I hear saving the earth, saving the tree, but yet we're cutting down trees to make books. You see where I'm going with this? There's hypocrisy in everything that we are doing. What do you think about this when I'm mentioning this diatribe that I'm as a question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I read a quote the other day that I really liked, which was, a hypocrite is a man in the process of changing. <laughs> oh, okay. And I, I thought that was a great way of approaching the issue because I'm a, I'm a hip hop fan. And when I was young, I, I um, did a lot of study of Tupac and his writing and music and poetry. And one of his lines too, that has always stuck with me was, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things you can say about Tupac, uh, good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but uh, one of his lines that I thought was really interesting was, um, don't blame me. I was given this world. I didn't make it. And, he, you know, he was kind of talking about being a gangster and, you know, the, the street life and all the crime and stuff that he got into. And, you know, he was basically saying, you know, I'm a product of my environment. I'm a product of what came before. And, and uh, you know, I think that's true for all of us. We... Um, we have control over what we have control over and we can do our best to try and change the world that that's coming, the world that we live in. Um, but I, I mean, I really think that this work, this transformation is the task of our generation. I mean, I know you've devoted your life to this work as well. And I assume you feel similarly, like this is the most important work I think that people can be doing. Um, and there are a lot of different elements to it, a lot of different ways that people approach it. And I think that transformation is big. It's challenging. It's, it's scary. And it's, we're wrapped up in the everyday of this world. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you on a cell phone and I'm sitting on the back porch of the home that I live in, uh, which is made of wood from cut down trees and you know, these trees probably weren't treated well. It probably doesn't come from an intact, healthy forest where somebody just took down a couple trees here and there uh, in a good way, you know, in relationship with the place. Um, it probably comes from industrial forestry. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't own this home um, as much as a human being can, can own anything. Um, and... So we're embedded in this world, but we have to change it. And I think it's it's easy sometimes to get all wrapped up in hypocrisy and get frozen, you know, to lose your momentum and just be focused so much on your own purity that you lose track of what we're trying to change as a culture. And I don't think there are really personal solutions to the issues that we're facing. I think that these are social problems and cultural problems and we need social and cultural solutions. Um, I think they're going to come at that larger level. And I think the individual level is part of that, you know, and you were talking about enjoying the natural world and, you know, that's the big, a big thing for me too, is just shifting. That's part of shifting my allegiance and shifting my love from this culture that I was taught to love. You know, I was taught to love TV and video games and movies and, um, 
you know, amusement parks and that type of stuff. And it's been a process of, of teaching and unlearning to, to learn to, you know, the point where now my favorite things to do are to go mushroom picking in the fall um, or the spring for the morels out here um, to, to go collect nettles and harvest nettles and make medicine or to, um, or to go out fishing on the local streams and know, know where to find the trout and how their populations are doing and when it's okay to take a trout uh, for dinner and when it's not. Um, and so I think that that individual piece is, is a big part of it. I don't think we can ignore that at all. Um, cause we're, we're human beings, you know, and I think we need, we need our spirits and our souls to be, to be fed and nourished and in relationship with the land and, and not at odds with what we're trying to do and what we believe in the world. Well, Max Wilbert is an author, writer, organizer, and wilderness guide in many books, including, uh, the other authors or co-authors are Derek Jensen, uh, and Lear Keith. Bright Green Lies is the name, how the environmental movement lost its way and what we can do about it. And I think what we can do is at least pick this book up and pass it on, share this book so that we can, maybe that the statistics will change, information will change because that's our experience. And we have to always look to the obvious that we're not being told between the lines tonight. I really commend you guys and doing what you're doing out in the desert any way you're doing to keep people the message is the earth and it's much bigger than anything we can do in our dualistic thinking about the earth so thank you so much max it's always an honor to talk to you and it's so engaging and enlightening and i'm glad to get to know you at least through this medium but thank you for being here on first voices max any final words well, thank you, Tiokasen. I really appreciate you having me on the show again. It's always really wonderful to talk with you. And, you know, my hope with a book like this, with an interview like this, with all the work that I do, is not just that people will listen and think, oh, that's interesting, and then go on with their lives. Um, my hope is always that people will be inspired to, to do something, to, to make change in the world. And um, so I hope that folks... Uh, read the book and and uh, and are inspired by it to get out on the land to change your beliefs to challenge the greenwashing and to defend the land I think that that needs defending no matter where you live there are unfortunately probably some really terrible things happening near you and um, and the land the earth needs allies the earth needs defenders and um, and so I think that's something that we can all do and we can all help with. And you're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. Our next guest, what we're going to dive right into, is Peter Buffett, a longtime friend of First Voices Radio, a well-established musician, composer, and producer, as well as a co-chairman of the Novo Foundation. Peter's music, film, and television work include fire dance seen in Oscar-winning Dances with Wolves, the entire score for 500 Nations, eight-hour miniseries for CBS, produced by Kevin Costner, and winning an Emmy Award for his album, Ojibwe. And we're going to discuss uh, Peter's song that he released uh, about a month ago, Land of the Free, and which you can find on YouTube. I begin this as my mother telling me that 
when she was a young girl, they had suddenly changed their salute to the flag of the U.S. In the palm out salute described by Francis Bellamy, the author of the American Pledge of Allegiance, as a gesture which was to accompany the pledge, both the pledge and its salute originated in 1892. And later, during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, Italian fascists and Nazi Germans adopted a salute which was very similar. And this is, uh, you know, that salute, uh, which is the palms out. This, is re- this has resulted in a controversy over the use of the Bellamy salute in the U.S. and was officially replaced by the hand over the heart salute when Congress amended the flag code on December 12th. And this is where we pick up with Peter Buffett, and we'll hear that song, Land of the Free, after this little interview. I would like to know your point of view, Peter. Well, I came to that title from a piece of the lyric. And in the lyric of the song, it talks about that there's been this cloth so finely woven, and that is the cloth of of oppression, really, that you can't even see it. But then I say, except from underneath. You can see it if you're underneath that cloth. And then I say, except from underneath in the land of the free, and that is basically a uh, a jab at the idea that here we are in the supposed land of the free, uh, and yet we have this finely woven uh, cloth of of oppression that has been more finely woven over time. So at first it was very grossly applied with with genocide and with slavery and and then even the assimilation in schools, which is where the Pledge of Allegiance comes in. Um, but over time, I believe that that power has learned how to to make that more and more seemingly invisible. But if you if you look uh, a little closer, you can see debt slavery. You can see uh, the way our kids are taught the things we think are patriotic, you know, all these things are actually all modes of keeping the current power structures in place. And and so land of the free is is basically saying anything but. <laughs> but <laughs> so that's where that came from. You noted the person who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance had to modify it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I had learned about this book called Looking Backward. It was written in the late 19th century, and it was written by this guy, Edward Bellamy, and it was a huge success. And I think it was a success because it looked at someone waking up after being asleep for 100 years, so waking up in about the year 2000, and having this utopian, near-utopian society created. And that was clearly a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, all of what people were feeling then. And so he wrote this novel about what could be possible. And it became, like I said, wildly successful. I think the third most popular book in that century. Clubs were formed. The the People's Party was formed. I mean, it really was gaining some traction. And I think a lot of things at the end of the 19th century around what's really going on here was gaining traction. And then World War I came along and various things came along that just crushed that in so many ways. But his cousin, uh, I'm forgetting his first name now, wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. Francis. Yeah, Francis. Yeah, thank you. So um, so here it is these, in the same family, somebody who was expressing through this novel 
what was going on and what people were hoping for in terms of what a society could look like. And then here's his cousin writing this Pledge of Allegiance, but he was a socialist. So his sense of allegiance was, I think, very different than what we've turned it into. You know, it was really allegiance to each other and to right relation. And how can we move into a different way of being connected to each other? But it quickly became, and this is what I didn't put in there that's so interesting, somebody asked him to do that so they could sell flags in schools. You know, beautiful as his intention might have been, it was still used for the, uh, you know, the intention of a, a product and selling a product. Therein lies, you know, I just heard this quote uh, from Quincy Jones that basically said, when money enters the room, God leaves the room. And even with the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, as as spiritually based as his intention was, they wanted to sell flags. <laughs> so money entered the room. <laughs> and it's just everywhere. <laughs> One thing that I, I noted in part of your notes, of course, the rise of philanthropy in, in today's scale. And, and you mentioned that this, this was his cousin's book. Um, I think it was, uh, you said, Edward, that Christian socialism. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that to me is a little confining in a bit because I can't think outside uh, of the box with that. Well, and that's the struggle, right, is you see the beauty of a certain aspect of this intention, and then you go into it a little further, and there are still these tentacles, right, of either Christendom or uh, hierarchy. It's just so embedded in uh, what, you know, I think you're certainly familiar with, and I am as well, this this virus that essentially uh, has come into uh, the culture of this country. And that is, it's insidious. I mean, it, it's really everywhere. Your first lines were, you can't claim to be too blind to see. Yeah. It reminds me of a native saying that says, you can't awaken someone who's pretending to sleep. Yes, exactly. Which also reminds me of George Carlin's line that they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. It's just that these kinds of conversations would be labeled as treasonous or unpatriotic or all these things. And it reminds me of a dysfunctional family where nobody wants to talk about the alcoholic or abusive father or something like that, where it's like, no, just don't say that part. It's like, (laughs) if we don't examine everything, we're just going to keep circling in the same place. Yes, we even if we get to talk about the elephant in the room, no one's talking about the room and how the elephant got inside the room. You wrote this song, Land of the Free, with all the, you know, the, the thoughts that you just told us, but what are people wanting to understand? Because the lyrics are really good and those very few, I think, can really understand what you're saying, need something to, to push them into a, this realization that there's much more than just following the old. We hear, especially now, the new normal, and I don't understand what that new normal is. Is it returning to, quote unquote, make America great again? Before we had the quote, what was it before America was going to be great again? No, exactly. I mean, I I just am am so worried about this rush to get back to normal, of course, Mm -hmm. and because 
because we know what normal was. We know what America was that people talk about being great. And uh, but so many people don't. So many people just want the safety and security of the known, which is, of course, we all want that. We all want to feel safe and, and secure. But again, the problem is that the, the structure is built so well that we think it has to, that safety must be inside of this structure somehow. And I, I honestly, you know, that's what drove me to write the song. I thought, I'm just going to say it again in, in a, hopefully a more direct way. Uh, and that's why it ends with, you know, hold on to what you know. But what people know is it's so hard to get to that real knowing place because we're so bombarded with with information about what is supposedly true and it's just you know we're in this little slice of time that is 500 years plus in the making and it will take us hundreds of years i'm afraid to get out of it and we just all do what we can just to end this this thought peter is i have a friend who basically said that if we expect to see the results of our work in this lifetime then we are not worth the people that we come from yes that's right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's going to take time because if we want to see the results in our lifetime, that makes it about us. Right. right. And that's yeah. not what this is about. This is about something much bigger. And, and, you know, it's funny because here I am suddenly being portrayed, which is true as a son of a billionaire, what that has now turned me into. So people can project on me as, Oh, I must be this. I must be that. Well, you know, native people, so many people have felt that for generations. So it's it's interesting now how everyone wants to blame somebody for something. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and we've got to uh, get beyond these identities at some point. Bruce Coburn says the thing about we all want justice on somebody else. Yes, exactly. Yeah. People are, are so upset. And I understand they're they're basic concern around accountability with what Novo's doing and where they're doing it, totally understandable. And yet, when I ask accountable to who, they always say the people they think I should be accountable to. You know, it's always still inside somebody's version of what justice looks like. And that's that's tricky. <laughs> well, so good to be with you, Peter, this, this uh, short interview. And people are going to hear Land of the Free, the song that I want to play. I'm so grateful that you hear it for, for its intention and purpose. And uh, so very appreciative to be here for that. Thank you, Peter. We'll see you next time, huh? Indeed.
Some kinds of magic, it's hard to 